Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Now take a look at Ephesians chapter 4 in the next few moments as we look at what Paul has to teach us. In, ver- in chapter 4, verse 1, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one immersion, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. When we get to chapter 4 in the book of Ephesians, we come into that section of Paul's book that we would refer to as the place of practice, the place of practical application on the basis of everything he has said in chapters 1 to 3. So in one sense, we can divide this book up into two parts. In chapters 1 to 3, we have Paul's doctrinal treatise. In fact, it is probably the most theologically astute section of Paul's writings anywhere except for that which we find in the book of Romans. And so Paul has told us of all the great benefits we have as believers in Messiah. He's told us in chapter 1 that we have been predestined as his own children. We have been called and we have been elected by him. He's told us that God has led us into what he is up to, what his plans and purposes are. He's told us that he has brought us out from death into life. And he has said that we who were dead in trespasses and sins are now seated in heavenly places and he's given us life. He's told us in chapter 2 that that life has come to us by his own grace and goodness. It is by grace that we are saved through faith and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. He's told us that not only has he brought us out from death into life, but he's taken Jews and non-Jews and made them into one new entity that he is now crafting and molding into the image of his son. As he has brought Jews and non-Jews together to be one in him, to grow together and to manifest the very glory and presence of God. We have read how Paul magnifies his ministry as such and how God has led him and guided him. And we find that after he reflects on these theological high points, 
He then takes a moment and he prays to the Lord in gratitude and thanksgiving, both in chapter 1 and also in chapter 3. When he concludes chapter 3 with his prayer, he now talks about in light of all these wonderful things God has done for us, how ought we then to live? What ought our lives to, be look, to look like? What kinds of people ought we to become? And Paul's primary concern is with what's happening with our character, what's happening inside, and how what happens inside might affect how we behave, how we act, and more importantly, how we relate to one another. Watchman Nee had written a commentary many, many years ago. I remember as a young believer in the 70s that he had this commentary on Ephesians that was broken up. I think the title of the book was Sit, Walk, Stand. I think that's how he broke it down. Because in chapter 1, he says we are seated in heavenly places. And in chapter 2 or so, he, or, or I should say in chapter 4, he begins to talk about how we ought to walk with him. And then in chapter 6, he talks about how we ought to stand with the full armor of God, ready to do battle with the enemy. So Watchman Nee spoke about sitting, walking, and standing. And the posture that links our ability to sit in heavenly places, our privilege to walk with him, and our duty to wage a warfare against the enemy of our souls in chapter 6. The linkage in all those postures is what we read in chapter 3 in verse 14, that we are to kneel. For this reason, I kneel. The thing that it enables us to do all of that, to sit, stand, and walk, is our prayer and our devotion and necessity and reliance upon the work of the Spirit of God in our lives to enable us to do all of those things. So when we look at chapter 4, we come now to this portion of Paul's letter in which he instructs us on how we ought to live, how we ought to walk. Take a look at verse 1. First of all, notice the basis upon which is instruction. He says, I, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life. Notice that he's beseeching us. He's exhorting us. He is, in a sense, um, I don't want to say begging us, but certainly he's more than simply instructing or advising. He's urging us to be individuals that live differently. And the basis upon which, and he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then or therefore, on the basis of all of the above that he has said in verses 1 to 3, I urge you to live a life. What kind of life? Take a look at verse 1. A life worthy of the calling we have received. This word worth, this word worthy, is a term that means to draw into a balance. When we speak of a worthy opponent, a worthy adversary. It's one who is much like ourselves, that has something of an equal status with us. The other night, Friday, or Friday night, Jag and, um, who, who is with us? Jag and Margie and Mary Lou Joel and I had gone to the Dodger game. We went to the Dodger game 
They went to see the Dodgers. I went to see the Red Sox. (laughs) Unfortunately, the Red Sox did not show up as we had hoped they would. Or at least I had hoped they would. But they were worthy opponents. The score ended two to nothing. I think Lackey, the pitcher for the Boston Red Sox, gave up three hits. One was a long ball with a man on, and that was their two runs. And, (laughs) okay, you know. But the Dodger pitcher also gave up two hits. He was fortunate. No long balls went out of the park, and so the Red Sox lost. But they were two worthy opponents. One in the first place in the American League East, the other in first place by now, what, 10 and a half, 11 games, nine and a half, in the National League West. Then they played again yesterday, and the score was four to two. This time the Red Sox won. But my point is that these are two worthy opponents. They're almost equal in their ability, although I have to admit the batting lineup of the Dodgers is pretty excruciating for us Red Sox fans. But what Paul is saying is this, we are to walk worthy of our calling. In other words, we're to hold in balance what we understand about God's teaching, that is the doctrine, the theology, the understanding of what the word of God teaches and how we live. The fact of the matter is balance is a difficult thing in life. When I was a student at Dallas Seminary and had a class with Dr. Charles Ryrie, I remember he had a book that he had written, Balancing the Christian Life. The whole book is about the challenge of balancing our lives and to live a life worthy of our Lord. That's what Paul is saying. What our tendencies oftentimes are is to be imbalanced and to focus on one side or the other of the equation. For those who are more cerebrally oriented, they will focus on the doctrinal side of the truths of the Word of God. Those are individuals that love to study God's Word. All they need is a desk, a lamp, and books. And they'll spend the rest of their life cloistered in front of them. They enjoy understanding the nuances, the language, the uh, grammatical structure of the phrases that they might truly understand as deeply as possible the teachings of God's word. And when they come to a practical section in chapters 4 to 6, they read very quickly through that and move on to the next section that is focused again on the quote-unquote deeper things of the Word of God. The problem with that is it's out of kilter and it's out of balance. The emphasis is on understanding the God's Word and the limitation and the lightness upon living out its truth. The danger is we become doctrinaire. The danger is we become bitter individuals. The danger is we become fundamentalistic thinkers. The danger is we are prone to becoming judgmental and expecting everyone to believe exactly as we believe. I know this side of the equation well because that is where I struggle as well. I love to study God's word. I love to understand God's word. I want to know the distinctions of all the theologians that I possibly can. 
When I was in seminary, I enjoyed the study of theology immensely. When I came to faith, I came to faith in a Nazarene church. Nazarene church is an Arminianistic denomination. They believe things I don't believe today. But at the time in my life, I felt like I had to nail every theological understanding I had and do it sharply. And if they, no one agreed with me, they were sort of deficient in their understanding of God's word. As I look back on my time in those days, and though I've come to differ dramatically with the theology of the Church of the Nazarene, Nevertheless, all I have for that denomination and the people I met there is a great deal of love and admiration and gratitude. They were the people that had led me to faith. They were the people that gave me my first opportunity to teach God's word. They were the first people that had given me a license so that I could go out and be recognized and qualified to speak in other Nazarene churches other than my own. They were the ones who had accepted me into a home study program that I could study through on my own with some help in the mail. We didn't have internet back then. And then they were the denomination that opened their church doors to me to come in and to teach God's word. Over time, I came to differ and at one point looked down upon them because of my different belief as I grew in my own understanding. And now as I've gotten much older, I look back and say, what a fool I was to behave that way and to think of myself in such an arrogant way. Now I only think of them and say how thankful I am for the ministry they had to me and to lead me in the manner in which I was able to go. On the other hand, there are individuals for whom doctrine and theology is just too confusing. You know, Why confuse the issue of Love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength with all of this other stuff. And so the focus for many others is don't bother me with what the Bible is teaching. Just let's love one another and let's just be kind to one another and let's just live a life that we would look back on and that God might look at and say that he is well pleased with how we've lived. Of course, whenever we recite the Shema and the Viahafta, we read, and thou shalt love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's a balancing act to live rightly and to think as deeply. It is necessary that we hold both in balance. And so Paul will first tell us what our benefits have been and what the doctrine of the word of God teaches us and what its theological significance is. And now he wants to do the very same intensity or concern with how we then are to live. And the way we are to live is to reflect the things we understand and know. The danger of simply thinking about how one might live without thinking about what God's word means is we lose a sense of why it is we should live this way. And not only that, but how it is we live this way. You see, if we focus so much on practice without an equal amount of understanding of doctrine, we become self-righteous. And we look at our lives and we say, look how good my life is. And we don't realize that the reason why our life might become good is because 
of the grace of God and how it has taken hold in our lives. It is not either or, it is both and, and that's the challenge in our lives. Now look at what Paul tells us, this life that is worthy, balanced between understanding the truths of God's word and living them out in a vibrant and exciting and genuine manner. He really breaks this down into two parts. He talks in terms of the kind of character that needs to be developed in our lives. And then he talks about how that character is to result in a sense of unity in the body of believers. The reason why there is division in the body of believers, and not division over doctrinal issues per se or denominational issues, but simply conflict in the body is because of a lack of character in the individual lives that are in that body. That's why Paul starts by talking about the kind of character we are to manifest. And if we manifest this character, then we will only create a sense of unity and oneness. And that's why Yeshua's prayer in the upper room with his disciples that we might be one as he and the Father are one. Now let's look at some of these character traits he talks about. Look at verse 2. First of all, he says, be completely humble. Well, I don't know how possible it is to be completely humble. But humility is to be a goal and something of an attainment in our lives. Someone has said that humility is that character in our lives that once we have it, we've lost it, you know? Once we think we've possessed it, we have lost it. Humility is a funny thing because we oftentimes think of it as some kind of self-deprecating characteristic that we have to somehow put ourselves down. But humility is really thinking of yourself honestly as we really are. I remember one pastor, and I had a similar experience. One pastor told a story like this, but I had a similar experience when I was at a church when I was working with Chosen People Ministries, and I was out speaking, and afterwards I was lined up with the pastor and an associate pastor, well, or saying goodbye to all the uh, people that had come, shaking their hands. And there was one woman who had come through the doors who had sung a special song. And so the pastor said, hey, thanks for coming. And, and I said, you know, it's nice to meet you. And thank you for that song. It was really nice. And then the, another pastor on my right or another elder on my right said, yeah, that song was great. You sang really well. And she said, it wasn't me. It was God. And he said, now, I understand that, you know, God worked in your heart and it gifted you and all, but you really did a great job. It wasn't me. It was God. And he said, it really wasn't that good. <laughs> you know, and I thought, you know, I looked over. But that's sort of like a false humility, right? She did sing good. It really was her voice. And it was a great song. If it was God doing that, it would be like we'd all be blown over by it, you know. But it was still very good. And so rather than say, I had nothing to do with that, she could have said, hey, thank you. I'm glad the Lord used me or whatever she want, might want to say. But humility is honesty about oneself. It is not thinking too highly of oneself than we ought to think. In, an, in Philippians, Paul says to consider others better than yourselves. Yeshua came humbly riding upon a donkey when he came into Jerusalem as the promised Messiah and Redeemer of the world. 
Similarly, we need to have the Spirit of God work in our hearts where there's a sense of humility, where we consider others before we consider ourselves. The second thing he mentions is, in my translation, is gentleness. I think some translations probably say meekness. And we oftentimes equate meekness with weakness. (laughs) And in the case of Moses, in Numbers chapter 12, I think it says, that he was the meekest man in all the earth. But Moses was not a weak man by any stretch of the imagination. He was an individual that killed a, uh, a master or a, a taskmaster early on when he was defending an, a Jewish man, an Israelite, who was being attacked by this Egyptian taskmaster. That is not a weak individual that's ready to take another life in defense of another. He was one, not only was he strong, I mean, he stood before the most powerful man in the world at that time. And said, let my people go. He was reluctant. I'll I'll accept that. But he wasn't weak. And he was willing to step forward. For 40 years, he was in the wilderness with over 2 million disgruntled individuals. Who wanted to return time and time and time again back to Egypt. But he kept pressing on and moving forward to the promised land that the Lord was leading him to go to. He was a strong man, but he was meek and he was gentle in many respects as he worked with the people he worked with. Messiah was very similar. He was one who was gentle of heart. He calls us to come unto him, all you who are labored and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Learn of me, take my yoke upon you, because I am gentle of heart. Messiah was a strong man as well, but he was also gentle. This is a great quality that we need to demonstrate and develop in our own lives and be yielded to the Spirit of God to make manifest within us where we are treating one another better than ourselves, where we are gentle with one another, especially when there are differences and disagreements. Look at the third thing that he mentions. He says, be patient, be completely humble, humble, be gentle. And then he says, be patient. Patient is, or another word for it is long-suffering. Patience is the result of persevering under great stress and pressure. It is suffering over a long period. It's the result of suffering over a long period of time. I had read the story of one individual who came to his pastor and asked him to pray for him that he would have patience. And the pastor started praying that the Lord would bring tribulation into his life. And he said to the pastor, maybe you misunderstood me. And the pastor said, no. And he read to him Romans chapter 5. And he said, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, patience, or long-suffering. So if we want patience, it comes through the struggles of our lives and suffering that we may have to endure. James says the same thing 
in James chapter 1, he says, Consider it all joy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. But perseverance or long-suffering must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Paul, of course, knew about suffering. And evidently, he also learned and in the process experienced patience. So we're told, be completely humble, be gentle, be patient. He then says, bear with one another in love. In one sense, patience is something that results from whatever suffering we might experience. But when he comes to bearing with one another, he's now talking about how individuals relate to each other within the body of believers. And he says, we're to bear with one another. That means to say we're to endure the struggles that we each cause each other. Paul takes for granted that we will cause trials for each other, that we will have differences among ourselves, very intense and strong differences. And thus he says we're to bear with one another. We're to work hard at relating to one another. We are to work at loving one another. It doesn't just come in an easy way. It doesn't come simply. It comes through hard experiences and tensions that mount within us, among us. So Paul says we need to become humble. We need to develop gentleness. We need to become people who are ready to suffer long. We need to be people who bear with one another. And then in verse 3, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Paul's words tell us that the Spirit of God is present in his body. Not only among individuals that love him, but among the collective grouping of individuals together. The Spirit of God is present in his body. Oneness is here because the Spirit of God resides here and manifests himself here. So Paul says we have to make every effort to maintain what the Spirit of God already brings here. And thus that's our part in the work that God is doing. It's another part of that balance that God is at work in our lives But we join with him in that work, and there's a sense in which we have to devote our wills, our conscious, our energy to these things as well. And so Paul says that we're to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. If these characteristics become manifest in our congregation, in our body, in our home groups, wherever we might reside. Then Paul says in verse 4, there is one body, and this is his whole focus. Look how often he uses this word one. There is one body. There is one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one immersion. There is one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. We are the body that the Lord has put together. He's thinking of the universal body of believers that are scattered throughout all the world. There is only one body. There are distinctions among the one body. 
because of emphasis we may place on different things. For example, the reason why there are Baptists, for example, is because they are committed to immersing individuals by baptizing them, immersing them fully underwater. The reason why there are Presbyterians is because, well, they do not necessarily, though there are some exceptions, will immerse individuals fully underwater. Rather, they will sprinkle them with water. In the case of some denominations, they're only going to fully immerse those who have an expression of faith. Among some, like Presbyterians, they're going to sprinkle little children, infants, as they come into the body. There are differences of opinion. It's important we have our convictions, our understandings of what we believe, but there are differences of opinion, yet there's one body. Because we are not all united on those differences. We still all see through a glass darkly, and yet we're all still members of the one body of Messiah. God is more tolerant with our distinctions than we are with our own distinctions. And yet God looks at us all as, these are my children. One day we'll find out what the final scoop is on it all. For the time being, we have to fall somewhere with what our convictions are. But we hold them with humility. We hold them with gentleness. We hold them with patience. I think it was Augustine who had, who had said, with the essentials, we have unity. Is that right? Essentials, un- unity. With our differences, we have liberty. And in all things, we have charity. With our differences, we are to have liberty. If we look at, and Paul is going to say, we have one hope. When he speaks of this one hope, he's talking about the promise of the return of Messiah. Our hope is the final glorification of our lives. That one hope is when we will be with him forever. Yet, there are churches out there bodies of believers, maybe even messianic congregations. I'm really not sure about this in that context. But there are some who will say there's going to come a kingdom that will last for a thousand years. I'm in that camp. But there are some who say, I don't know what kind of kingdom you're talking about. There isn't a thousand year kingdom. They understand the words to be symbolic. When we look at end time events, and if we think about the catching up of believers into the very presence of God, what is referred to as the rapture, there are those who will say that will occur before the tribulation period. Some will say it will occur after. Some will say somewhere in between. There are differences of opinion, yet there's one hope. There's only one expectation of the finality of all things that God is going to bring together. That one hope we all share, the Lord is coming. We all share that hope. He's coming. We all share that hope that we will be glorified with him. We all share that hope that there will be an ultimate resurrection where our bodies will be joined to our souls, our spirit, and we will be made whole in the very presence of God. This mortal will put on immortality. This corruption will put on incorruption. We all understand that. But there's all these little nuances and details that we have our distinctions. Yet there's only one hope, the return of our Lord and the finality of all that is to transpire. There's only one body with all of the distinctive theological ideas that we all manifest and reveal. There's only one Savior 
as Paul says. There aren't many saviors. There aren't many messiahs. There's the messiah for this people, for that. There's only one messiah in all of history. And that messiah is Yeshua of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. He is the one that we all must believe in. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so there is only one Messiah and Lord. And thus, it is to him that we all must bow our knees. And it is before him that every tongue will ultimately confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul is telling us there is much more that unites us than what divides us. There's only one Messiah. And even though if we were to share all our testimonies, I was thinking about this, if we shared all our testimonies, how it is that the Lord saved us, you know, ultimately he saved every one of us the very same way. Yet when we share our stories, the stories are all different, interesting and insightful. Yet ultimately they're all the same. Every one of us came to realize we were in desperate need before God because of our sin. All of us came to understand we are sinners before God. All of us had the same exact need, despite what our distinctive sinfulness might have been. None of us were more sinners than others. We all had the very same need. Messiah had to save us. All of us have received the very same Spirit of God. All of us have the very same destiny. We're headed to be with Him. All of us will experience the same transformation. There is much more that unites us than what divides us if we thought about what God has done in our hearts. All of us have been regenerated and made alive The same way. All of us sit with him in the heavenly places. All of us have received all of the spiritual benefits that God has for us. All of us have the very same thing. The spirit of God dwelling in our midst. Yet we're all different. We've all come a different way. But there's only one Lord who has equally saved all of us. There is only one faith. And that is the faith that is spoken about in God's word and the truth of who Messiah is. There is only one spirit who dwells in all of our midst. There is only one immersion that signifies association with the true God, immersion in the name of Messiah. You might have been fully immersed. You might have been sprinkled. You may have had different words said or prayers recited, but there's only one immersion. Whether Paul is speaking about water immersion or the immersion, immersing work of the Holy Spirit that places us into the body, there's only one that identifies us with the body of Messiah and with the Lord himself. There's one Lord, one faith, one immersion. There's only one God, and there's only one Father, that we all ultimately are responsible to be responsive to. Paul's point then is, since we are united in terms of these truths and experiences, 
We need to be one body in reality where we are maintaining the oneness among one another and among ourselves. When we do, Paul tells us, we are living a life that is worthy of the calling we have received. I love that phrase, we have received. The calling is one that's been given to us. It is not one you have earned. It is not one you have manufactured. It is one that was given to you, which you have received. There's the balance. It is what God has initiated as a gift to you. And therefore, our life is to be lived worthy of God's blessings bestowed upon us. That necessitates a yieldedness to the work of God in our hearts and outwardly in our lives. We have to develop humility within in order to be humble with one another. We have to develop a gentle heart within if we're going to be gentle with one another. We have to develop some kind of patience within if we're going to be patient with one another. In other words, we need God to take full residence of our hearts in order that he might be displayed in our relationships with one another so that in our body there is that oneness that when people come in, they see a body of individuals who love one another because of their great love for our Savior. And so as we move together in our lives, as we live together in our congregation, this is the starting point, as Paul explains in chapter 4. We are to live a life that is worthy of the calling God God has given to us. What God has given to us, he explained in chapters 1 to 3. Now our life has to reflect all of those wonderful blessings that have been bestowed upon us. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness to us always. And we thank you, Lord, for all that you've granted to us. Help us, Lord, to live this balanced, worthy life. A life that rejoices in the truths that you have explained to us in your word as best we can. But a life that then, that then puts into practice those realities. Our destiny is certain and sure, and it is a marvelous one. So, Lord, may we exhibit humility in our midst because we've had to humble ourselves before you first. When we came to you and said, Lord, take my life, for without you, it is lost and I am dead. We humbled ourselves before you. Help us to always humble ourselves before one another. Lord, many of us have traveled long and difficult roads that have led us unto yourself. Help us, Father, to be as equally patient and long-suffering with others even as you have been with us. Help us, Lord, 
to be so yielded unto you that we would preserve the unity that you have established by means of the presence of your Spirit. Help us to work hard at being one body here at Beth Ariel. And then, Lord, help us, Father, to glorify you, for you are our God and Father of all. And so, Lord, as we look forward to your continued blessings on Beth Ariel and as we reach out to our community, I pray, Father, that they might see these changes and transformations and realities that only you can bring to bear in our own midst. For we pray in Messiah's name, for his honor, for his glory. Amen. Jerry. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.